Well, good morning, family. Am I on? Good morning. God is good. God is gracious. God is glorious and God is great. We come here to worship Him today, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We are in a four-week series about the church, and it's called Flawed But Beautiful. So if you're a guest joining us, you're kind of smack in the middle of what we're doing. I'd say go online and listen to the other two sermons that we did. It'll help give some context for where we are this morning. Uh, Today we're talking about members of the church. And to begin, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Psalm 16 that I think are going to help frame uh, the topic that we're talking about this morning. And then we're going to dive into some more directly related passages of Scripture. Uh, These verses speak to the fact that God sovereignly establishes boundary markers and structures in the world, and that we should see uh, his establishing of structure as a beneficial good thing for us as human beings. So if you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 2 through 4. Honor your father and mother, This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is God's word for God's people. We're going to pray, and we just sang a song about every knee will bow to the King of Kings. Part of what the church does is that we show the world what it means to bow to him. We say it looks like this. Come join us in bowing before the Lord. So as I pray, if you're physically able, would you join me in bowing before the presence of God? Almighty God, we bow in your presence. We know that you are here, that your spirit is among us, and it is a Holy Spirit. You're a holy God. We love you. And we, with our bodies, not just with our mouths, want to acknowledge that you are the king, and that is such a great thing, and we acknowledge it. We humbly bow before you. Jesus, you said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so, Father, we pray that we would hear your word so that we might live and be nourished and flourish as your people. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little bit of review to bring us up to speed. Last week, we talked about consumer relationships and covenant relationships. And we said that uh, consumer relationships, these are uh, self-gratifying, self-protecting, low-commitment relationships that center around this singular question. What do I get out of this relationship? What do I get from this 
relationship. And we talked about how truthful and meaningfully deep relationships cannot happen in that kind of an arrangement between people. The biblical alternative to this is covenant relationships. We said that covenant relationships are an other-centered, other-benefiting, high-commitment relationship. And we talked about how just as the Lord has loved us with a sacrificial covenantal love, we are to love one another with a sacrificial covenantal love. This is how we, together as a church, glorify God in the earth. As I have loved you, you love one another, Jesus said, in this way. And so, so here's where we are. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about the structure within the church that allows these covenant relationships to actually form, and not just form, but actually endure and get sweeter over time. So today, we're going to be talking about us, so to speak, us as members. Next week, we're going to talk about elders. But before we can talk about members in the church, there's this cultural challenge that, that we need to talk about, that we need to address. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture doesn't like structure very much. And it certainly doesn't like definitions. Except the ones we define for ourselves. Amen? Our culture teaches us, day in and day out, seven days a week, that all structure, all lines of definition categorically restricts our freedoms as human beings. It's a straitjacket for us. It, the quality of our, and it affects our quality of life. We have a lesser quality of life if there are structures and boundary lines of definition. And so, so those things must be either avoided at all costs or torn down. The biblical word for that would be trespass. That's when you cross over a line, right? And that's what it teaches us. That's the good life. Our culture and our society says, who are you to tell me what is good and not good? Who are you to tell me what's good and bad for me? Who are you to tell me what is right and wrong? Who are you to tell me what a family is? Who are you to tell me what love is? Who are you to tell me what success is? Or what harm is? See, we can't even agree what good is because we don't even know what harm is. Freedom comes from defining all those things for myself, thank you very much. This is the culture that we are immersed in. But the Bible says, as we just read in those passages, if you were paying attention, that God has sovereignly placed his boundary marker, so to speak, into his world, the world that he created. God gives structure. God gives roles to various relationships. For example, in the Ephesians 6 passage that we read about the family, there are clearly parents and clearly children, and they don't flip-flop from time to time, right? Even though they are all equally members of God's family, there's clearly defined roles and lines in that family. There's structure. Psalm 16, 5 through 6 tells us that because God is the one who has established some boundary lines and structures in the world, we should be glad about that. We should like that. In fact, Psalm 16 tells us that we should want to live within those boundary lines, those markers, that structure. Let's go back to the text, Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And this is the part I love. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
wherever God establishes boundaries and structures, it is for our good and for our flourishing in, as human beings. Boundary markers make things visible. You understand what I'm saying? Like a plot of land, like an inheritance. Here's your inheritance, and here's how you know. I've marked it out for you. This is what boundary lines do. God is saying, here is where there is blessing, and here is where there is death. Freedom and blessing come from living within the structure that I have laid before you. I'm going to mark this out so you can actually enjoy your inheritance. You can actually enjoy what I'm giving to you. I don't want you to be fuzzy about that. I want you to enter into that and be glad and enjoy it to the fullest potential. When we first start, you guys know this to be true in your own lives, when we first start following Jesus, we, st- we enter into that covenant relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. The lines and the structure that he gives oftentimes feels a little restrictive to us, amen? Sometimes it can feel like it's just like do's and don'ts. I'm not used to living this way. But as we mature, as, as we mature spiritually over the years, we find, just like the psalmist says, that those lines have actually fallen in pleasant places in our life. What we thought was narrow lines actually is is, is a whole lot bigger than we thought. There's actually a whole lot more room for us to grow in than we first saw. Does this make sense? If you're a parent, you know this. If you've ever been a child, you know this because you had parents. God's structures, we find out, actually have helped us grow up into fullness of maturity. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance because that's what he's given to us distinctly belonging to a local church or membership is part of the structure that God has placed into his family so that we can form covenant relationships with one another and ultimately grow up into maturity into Christ. Here's what we mean by the word membership. We mean a way to clearly identify who is entered into a committed relationship with the Lord and a local body of believers. That's what we mean by it. Now, I want to focus on two big uh, pieces today that give evidence for membership in a church. Roles and discipline. Roles and discipline. Now, there's a variety of passages that address these two structures in a church. There's a lot we could talk about, but I'm only going to talk about these two big rocks this morning because we only have so much time. John said I only had two hours, and so I got to get to work, all right? So here we go. Let's, let, let's, I'm going to get a drink of water because it's dry in here, and then we'll get right into the first structure, which is roles. Roles. Hebrews uh, 13, verse 7, and then we'll drop down and read verse 17, okay? Remember your, what's that word there? I didn't hear you. What? Okay, very good. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
You see how these relationships work together within some structure? This is very interesting. I I want you to notice, first of all, how similar these verses sound to the verses that we just read about parents and children in both their instruction and in their balance. Did you guys notice that? There's instruction and there's also balance there. There are analogies between the ways that human families are structured and God's family, which is the church, is structured. And there's a lot of overlap there. This verse plainly states that there is clear authority that God has given the leaders of a church. God has temporarily temporarily placed them in a particular role to lead a church, feed a church, and guard a church. Now that's how they're supposed to use their authority in that way. It's not to benefit themselves. It is to benefit the church of God. And we're going to talk more about elders next week, so I don't want to shoot my wad right now about that, or I won't have anything to say next week. But that's kind of generally what's going on there. So the instruction here in Hebrews 13, 17 is that members of a church are to obey and submit to the leaders that God has placed over them. Now regardless of what that means, obey and submit, regardless of what that means, here's the question that you and I have to ask. Okay, which leaders? Which leaders are we to do this for? And there's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of spiritual leaders out there in the world, right? A lot of pastors that preach from the Bible, in fact. Who are you specifically responsible to obey and submit to? That's the question that we have to have an answer. See, is this every pastor with a Bible and a podcast ministry? Is it everyone in the United States of America? Is it every spiritual leader in the state of Washington or in Kitsap County? Who are you specifically responsible to obey the scripture about? Well, the answer is actually given within the very same verse that we read. Take a look at it with me. He says that though it's those that are keeping, watch over your souls as those who are to give an account. In other words, it's those who have made a serious commitment to you, the church. Those are the ones It's those that live among you. It's those that live near you. There is a way that you can clearly identify your leaders. They are the ones who have made an earnest commitment to your spiritual well-being. They are the ones that are clearly committed to the welfare of that particular church. Those are the ones that you're to obey and submit to. Verse 17 goes on to say, these leaders, get this, are keeping watch over your soul. Now what's interesting about that is that's a shepherding phrase. That's a shepherding term, keeping watch over your souls. You think about the nativity story in Luke chapter two, right? In that same region, they were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. They were sore afraid, King James Version, right? Shepherding, it's a shepherding phrase. And the words here for keeping watch have the literal sense of sleeplessness. They're keeping watch of their flock when? At night. There's sleeplessness to this role. These leaders, in other words, stay awake. They stay alert and on the lookout for things. They stay awake remembering you, praying for you, guarding you so that you can sleep easy in the love of Christ, 
They keep pointing you to Christ for what you need. I, I don't know what else to call that, but a commitment to a flock. That's a commitment to a flock. And by the way, that is what you have when you belong to a local church. And by the way, that's what you have in these elders here. You really do. They're not going to brag on themselves, so I'm going to brag about them. You have some great elders. They think about you guys a lot, and they think about this church a lot. We think constantly about this church's welfare seven days a week, day and night. We pray for you as individuals in particular when we gather and we meet or text each other or email. We pray for you individually by name in particular, and we pray for this church collectively as Crossway Church. We're constantly praying and thinking about things like this. I'm just going to give you a short list, okay? What are the current spiritual threats to the people of Crossway right now? There's stuff coming in and out of this church all the time. We want to know what that is. What is it, podcasts? Is there books? Is it people? What are the current spiritual threats to the people of Crossway right now? And, what, and how do we guard our people against those threats? What are the immediate needs of Crossway Church? What, are the, what, what will Crossway need in two years or three years or five years so that she's a sustainable church? What messages do our people need to hear next so that their souls might be fed and nourished in the word of God? What is that? Are the sick being cared for? And how do we know that the sick are being cared for? Are our people maturing and growing up in the faith or are they started to coast? And, and how do we dress those people that have started to coast? Because that is not good for them. What direction does the Lord want to take our church now? Have we as elders prayed and asked God for enough wisdom to make some of these decisions and to be able to do this? Have we asked God for the power and the strength to do the work that he's called us to do? Have we done that sufficiently? Listen, as a leader, let me tell you, those kinds of concerns will make you have some sleepless nights. Okay? That will interrupt your relaxing cup of coffee in the morning out of the clear blue sometimes. We care about you. We care about this church and what this church will be after you guys are all gone. This is how we think about the church. We love this church. And, and over all of that, this particular scripture, among others, tell us that we will have to give an account to God for how we treated his precious bride that he bled for. Because this is all kind of on loan. So that kind of looms over us. And we talk about that, and we understand that. You don't take this role unless you are clearly committed to the church's welfare and to God's glory. It's not either or. It's both. But all of that means that there's got to be some kind of clear way for the leaders to identify which souls they're going to actually give an account for. Because I believe that's what's going to happen to me and the other elders. There's going to be some way we've got to be able to identify that. We cannot give that kind of commitment, that kind of prayer, that kind of mental space and energy and time to every Christian on the planet. Amen? Somebody say amen. We can't give that kind of commitment, time, and prayer to everyone just in the state of Washington or Kitsap County. So there must be some kind of mechanism in place to clearly identify who the members of this, of this church are so that we can know if we're doing our job or not, frankly. 
But there's also a flip side to this relational structure. It's not a structure or relationship. It's a relational structure here. Who are the people that have made a commitment to obey and trust the leaders God's put over them in the church? Who are those people? Which people in particular have committed themselves to making the heavy work of shepherding joyous for elders and leaders and not groan-inducing? You see, family, the first evidence for some kind of identifiable church membership is that there are clear roles in the local church that God has set up. There are shepherds who know their flock and there's a flock that supports and obeys their under-shepherds as under the Lord. The second evidence from Scripture is church discipline. Church discipline. So, Here's what I want to do. I'm going to, go, I'm going to read through some verses, and I'm going to explain a little bit as we walk through this passage of what is being said. But listen, my goal is not to get into the details of church discipline here, because this is not going to be a sermon about church discipline. We'll do that some other time, okay? But mainly what I want to do is I want to show how it gives evidence for clearly defined members. So I'm going to bring up stuff that you have questions I'm just not going to answer, because that's not the goal right now, okay? Here's the focus, and here we go. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to, this is Jesus talking, by the way. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refused to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Verse 18, here's where the authority part comes in. Truly, I, this is Jesus talking, truly, I say to you, whatever you, as in you all, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now here's where we're at. We live in a culture that doesn't know what love is. Can the church say amen to that? We don't know what love is. We have a very skewed understanding of love because what we just talked about earlier, we want to define all that for ourselves individually. We have, we have nothing, to co- a common definition here. Love today is almost entirely defined as how someone makes me feel when I'm in their presence. They love me because I feel loved when I'm around them. I feel good when I'm around them as opposed to acting in a way that benefits the other person. And so here's the problem. We don't have a category in which to put discipline, whether it's discipline, church discipline, or whether it's family discipline. We don't have a bucket to put that in. Again, this is where the family structure is so helpful for us. It is loving for parents to sacrifice sleep for their children, sacrifice money for them. It is loving for parents to feed them and to clothe them and to kiss them and to hug them. 
And, the chil- and our children love that because that is love. They feel loved when we do that. But it is also loving to correct their child when they do wrong, even though the child doesn't feel loved while that's happening, right? It's still love. Discipline is always a rescue mission. And what God has established in the Christian home, he has also established in his family, the church, the family of God. So here's the stages. We're going to just go real quick through it. Stage one, a fellow believer starts walking in sin. You go to him or her privately. You approach him or her about it. And here's the principle that's overlying all of this, regardless of what stage, regardless of what stage we find ourselves in. The principle is this. We are trying to win them back to the path of life. We're trying to win them back inside those boundary markers of where there's a beautiful inheritance. Come walk in this. It's not retributive. It's restorative always throughout this process, okay? So you go to her, you go to him, you lovingly, humbly, Point out their sin to them. Point out their fault. You're not like in their face. You're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to win the man. You're trying to win the person. And if they hear that as love, if they listen to you and they repent, that means they show some kind of sign that they have left that and they're going another direction. That's repentance. Then you rejoice. You've gained your brother, Jesus says. And by the way, stage one is something that should be done often in church, if it's a healthy church. It should be, it should be done often in your home, right? It should be done often in a healthy church. Unhealthy churches, they don't even do this. They just pretend nothing's wrong and let people just kind of do whatever they want. We all need, we need help doing the one another's of Scripture we talked about last week, right? I need help doing this. You need help doing that. We all need a little, you know, correction from time to time. No, not this way, loved one, this way. We all need it. Stage two, if they refuse to listen, Jesus says, if, they, if you go to them and you lovingly, you humbly, you point out the fault that they have, the sin that they are engaging in, and they say, hey, you know what? That's fine, but you know what? God's a God of grace. And God's good with what I'm doing and what I'm saying and what I'm thinking. God's a God of grace. And so he's fine. And by the way, what gives you the right to stick your nose in my business, brother or sister? If that's their response, and they may say it nicer than that, but if that's effectively, that's their response and that's how, that's how they come back with us, then, then uh, we need to move on. Jesus says you need to bring a couple of other people and you need to plead with them. You need to beg them to change their mind and to change their course of action. Remember the promises you made to your brothers and sisters at Crossway. We were there for that. Remember the promises that you made to God. Remember the grace that you received from God and how he entered into a covenant relationship with him and you promised to enter into a covenant relationship with him. Remember what he did for you. How can you do this in light of what he did for you? Please repent of your selfishness and your pride. And if they listen, Jesus says, we're gonna rejoice about that. We throw a party because you've saved your brother. You've rescued your sister. That relationship's been restored. But if they refuse to listen, that's stage three. Jesus says, take it to the church, which in our case means bring it to the elders. We bring some elders into this. And the elders plead for this sister or brother to repent of their sin. You see how long this process is, by the way? Repent of their sins for the good of their own soul. 
listen, we love you, and your sin is bringing destruction upon your life if you persist in this way. It's already started. Please change. Please listen to someone. Please listen to God. You're shaming and taking the name of the Lord in vain. He's not pleased with that. Come back. Come back. Repent, brother. Jesus says that they persist in unrepentant, arrogant sin, then we are to regard them as a tax collector. A tax collector, a Gentile, that's someone who does not believe in God. They hate God. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to live his way. That means the church body has been given authority by Jesus to no longer affirm that they're a born-again Christian. That doesn't mean we're saying they're not saved. Only God can know that. But it's just saying, we're just not going to affirm that profession of faith you made. It looks fake. And we're just going to say that. We can't affirm that, that you mean any of that right now because you've shown us for so long. That person is repeatedly and stubbornly saying with their actions that they don't want to belong anymore to the people of God and they don't want to be identified as a child of God. Stop saying that about me. And so the church is going to say, okay, we won't identify you that way. Have it your way. And so with many tears and with, with trembling and with great sadness in our hearts, we remove them from membership. And remember, we're not talking about people who's like battling sin and they fall into it again. And that's, not, that's not what we're talking about at this point, right? We're talking about someone who is in unrepentant sin who utterly refuses to listen to anyone no matter who they are or where they're coming from. They're just not gonna listen. I don't wanna hear it. You're making me mad now. You're making me angry by calling me back to life. But this doesn't mean that we totally shun them. I don't have time to go into 1 Corinthians 5. I don't have time to go into 2 Timothy. There are other passages, and there's some other things that we may have to do something like that. But, but what this does mean in Matthew 18 is that we treat them like someone who is not saved. We treat them as someone who is not a born-again Christian. And so we do engage them. We will talk with them on the phone but we're going to engage them in a very market, marked different way now at this point. We are going to share the gospel with them every time we come in contact with them because they don't know it and they need to hear it and it's good news. And that's the only kind of conversation we're going to have with them. We're going to call them to repent of their foolishness and stubbornness. That's going to kill them because we love them and we don't want that for them. They're welcome to come and sit in on Sunday morning to hear the preaching of God's word. We want them to come hear God's word and fall under conviction and see his promises are sweet and to change their ways. But we don't break bread with them like they're a brother and sister, like nothing's going on. Now, some of you are saying, that's all great, Lingle, but what on earth does this have to do with church membership? Well, Jesus says, tell it to the church, right? Tell it to the church. So the question we have to ask is, which church? Any church will do? Every church? Are we talking about the church universal? Just a couple of Christians that we happen to notice, that's who we tell it to? In other words, how do we know when the church is assembled to hear this? How do we know that? There has to be some way of clearly knowing who is actually part of the covenant community in order for that covenant community to actually obey these scriptures, to know that it's happened. 
In addition, we could say that in order to clearly remove someone from the covenant of, of the community of believers, they had to be clearly added to that church community in the first place. Why? So that the church can actually recognize if and when this has happened so they can tell when they've come back in. In other words, there cannot be officially be an out if they were never officially in. Where was that line? Where was that boundary marker? Now, there's many other scriptures we could look at to give evidence for, for clear membership, but we don't have time for that. I just wanted to give you guys two big passages today, two big rocks. I won't go into Romans 16, 16. I won't, okay, I won't, I won't go into all these others, okay? But from these two structures, roles and discipline, we believe that there's evidence for some type of clear church membership. And the fact is that the church is, by definition, her members. Just like a body is, by definition, its members. You don't have members, you don't have a body. While the Bible does give us some guidelines on how we are to do membership, it doesn't answer all of our questions, though. It doesn't answer all of our questions specifically about process. doesn't answer all of the questions we would have of down to the fine-tooth questions we might have, no. And so I want to be clear. As a local church, there are many ways to identify who your members are and be biblical. And there's also many ways as a church to identify who your leaders are and be biblical. You can equally be biblical about that. As Crossway introduces a more formal membership this year, we are not saying this is the only way. We're just saying this is our way. I want everyone to hear that. We're not saying this is the only way. We're just saying this is our way. This is where we've landed on this, that we think is good and wise and helpful for people. And so here's, I'm going to give a, little, a very quick overview of how we'll, we will do covenant membership here. It can be summed up in this little phrase. One class, one conversation, one commitment. All right? There's going to be one class for every, that everyone takes that's interested in being a covenant member at Crossway Church. Just one class, not three, not ten, not twenty, just one. Next Sunday is our annual business meeting. Pastor John mentioned that uh, after the worship gathering. You can sign up for the class at that business meeting. And so in the class, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay all of our cards out on the table, all right? We're going to say, this is who we are. This is what we believe as a church. This is the mission that our particular church is striving after. This is how we're going to try to accomplish that mission this is how we make disciples here. We're not saying it's the only way. We're just saying it's our way. We want you to know that. Here's how we make disciples here. Here's what we expect of covenant members. Here what you, here's what you should expect of one another and of the elders. If you think of it like the, the, a dating relationship maybe, we're just gonna be ourselves on the first date for you. That's what we're gonna do. Here we are, good, bad, and ugly. This is us. This is me. That's what we're gonna do. And lay it all out there. And then let people decide if they want to enter into a relationship with us. We know that's good and wise and helpful for people. We want people to know who we are so there are no surprises down the road. See, not consumer relationship. Where you hide who you really are. That's covenant relationship. We're drawing you into this. After that class, we'll set up a meeting uh, with an elder. And this is going to give people a chance to actually ask the questions that they didn't get to ask in that class. It also gives us as elders a chance to hear 
how people have come into a relationship with Christ. How do they understand the gospel? How are they growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how do they want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? It also gives us a chance to see if people understand what it actually means to be in a covenant relationship with one another here at Crossway. This is part of helping us do our job as elders in Hebrews 13, 17. And after that, there's a covenant to be signed. Now, I want you to think about this as not, necess- not just as a commitment. I want you to think of this covenant as a teaching tool, okay? It's a teaching document. There's nothing in there that you're not going to find in Scripture. We've just alliterated it. We've just brought it to the surface. We've just articulated it very clearly and put it in one place so that we can look at it together and not be fuzzy about it. It's absolutely filled with Scripture. It lets you know what God expects of you as a Christ follower, what he expects of me as a Christ follower, and what you can expect of the other elders. It's going to actually let you guys know if we're doing our job or not. Now, that doesn't that put us in a vulnerable position? You can say yes, it puts us in a vulnerable position. And vulnerability is how we build trust with one another, amen? That's how it happens. And so we're putting ourselves in a vulnerable position because we are hoping that you will be called to put yourself in a vulnerable position. This is covenant relationship, not consumer relationship. We're doing it different than the world. So that's how we're going to begin covenant membership here. One class, one conversation, one commitment. And so I want to end uh, the sermon. I'm going to land the plane here, okay, mercifully, cutting it short here, with a gospel reminder because we love the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what started all this in this series. What motivates you and I to make ourselves vulnerable with one another? Because some of us, we don't even know each other, right? So what gives us the motivation to want to make ourselves vulnerable with one another? What gives us the desire to submit to one another and serve one another and pray for one another and sacrificially love one another? It's this. It's the fact that Jesus Christ, though he is God, did all of that for us first. Oh, and while we were sinners. Let's go, let's go here to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourself. Paul's saying, look, I don't know what kind of thinking you're doing right now. I don't know what kind of framework you're working all this stuff through right now, but here's the, here's the mind you should have. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Equality with God. Equality with God. Equality with God. A thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Becoming obedient? Jesus obeyed? Do 
Jesus obeyed? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Crossway. That Jesus loves us is amazing in and of itself, right? But to consider the way that he freely chose to love you and I, that has the power to make us want to love one another. This is what you and I need to be marinating on. This is what you and I need to be discussing with one another and reminding one another and thinking about as we think through this. This is having the mind of Christ as we think through this. This is what motivates you and I to do this for one another. Oh, what he did for us. I love you guys. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, we love you so much. You're the high and exalted one. You're the boss. You're the king. But we're so thankful that you're the king who cares. You're the king who cares for us. I'm even staggered by the words I just read, the fact that you even obeyed the Father. And you did it for me. Who doesn't want to submit or obey much of anything, much less you. And you did it for me that I might be brought into your family. Thank you for doing that. Dear Jesus, I pray that your word would feed us, would feed our church. I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways. Help us meditate on not just that you love us, but how you loved us and that that would make us your children. Continue to shape us by your word. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.